I'm yet coming to you live here from Talbot Hall here at Nichols State University, coming back to you with the second episode of the Philosophicast. Welcome. Uh, I am joined by my typical guest. Good afternoon. Carson, yes. Uh, I think your mic's working. Oh, wait. Uh, that's probably it. Try try speaking now. Does this sound better? That sounds immaculate. There, All right. There we go. It's uh, That's mic three. I had mic two on, but yeah. So awesome. So we got the mic working. Uh, but welcome. Yes. Uh, welcome to the second episode of Philosophicast where we talk about philosophy, the esoteric uh, myths and whatnot. Um, so... Uh, before we get started, uh, make sure to tune in to all the other DJ shows uh, here on 91.5. You can do so on your radio or on the Radio FX app on your phone. Uh, additionally, with the Radio FX app, you can open a chat feature uh, in which if you want to ask us questions, uh, we will be checking that every now and then, I suppose. Uh, there's also a poll feature, but we won't be using that today. So yes, uh, check out the Radio FX app on the App Store. And also be sure to catch all the DJ shows all together on um, Spotify at KNSU The Podcast. So KNSU The Podcast uh, on Spotify. That's where all Philosophicast and all the other DJ shows will be. Anyway, so uh, today's episode alchemy in egypt in our uh series on uh, more afrocentric topics uh stay tuned for next week we'll be talking about a uh african philosopher named zara yakub the african philosopher you've probably never heard of so stay tuned for that anyway uh alchemy in egypt so more esoteric topic i guess you could say carson um right yeah uh so uh let's start with this so what do you when, when you think of alchemy and uh or what do you think of I usually imagine it as being the prelude to medicine in a way, or mm -hmm. at least modern day medicine. I've also heard that um, even though obviously now we know that it's a, it's a bit of a pseudoscience, um, there may have been people when it was being used around that time that were also aware that it did not have any like real effective use. Mm -hmm. And they may have been like I, I suppose um purposefully lying about its effectiveness and how much it actually has an effect on the human body yeah so i think you 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 kind of covered uh the main thesis of perhaps this episode uh the idea being that so there is absolutely a connection between uh, alchemy and chemistry uh it's just it should be thought of as they were being done for different purposes now actually in the etymological sense, so in the in terms of the word and the history of the word alchemy, the word chemistry does in fact come from the word alchemy. Uh, and in many languages in Europe, uh, they're actually they're kind of interchangeable. So there there in fact is a connection. Like you said, um, as you said, uh, with alchemy, it's associated with medicine. That's true, uh, but it's more so associated with uh, transmutation and changing matter. So like you said, uh, they were doing it for different purposes. Not necessarily for the for understanding matter as modern chemists would do, but uh, in most circumstances they were trying to make gold, uh, usually from lead and other metals. But really, yeah, that was the idea. It was uh, at least the main idea because what's strange is in many circumstances in these experiments. Now we're getting into the, like a broad history of al alchemy before we get into uh, e how it ties into ancient Egypt specifically. Um, so alchemy as a practice where they were trying to transmutate usually lead to gold, but in the process of doing so, they accidentally discovered a lot of things that many chemists uh, later on would uh, 
go on to discover uh, an accident. So like an example, uh, there's a story about uh, phosphorus. Now, the thing with alchemists in the medieval age is uh, as time went on, they got very secretive in their writings and they would imp implore a uh, technique um, in their writing. Uh, you know, but I'll get to that in a second. So, uh, the, the, so, and they were very secretive about it, right? The very, uh, they would not share these, their experiments, uh, for many reasons. Um, there was also a lot of com competition between alchemists, right? Trying to be the first to find gold. And there's a story about how, uh, the, uh, scientist Boyle in the 17th century, he, got a recipe from another an alchemist of his time now interesting thing alchemy didn't really go out uh until about the 1700s in fact isaac newton claimed himself to be an alchemist uh it's just that chemistry uh took over because alchemy was seen as a more uh mystical subject but basically <clears throat> boyle uh figured out got a recipe for phosphorus from an alchemist who also got it from a previous alchemist that apparently uh made phosphorus in the 1400s so it, they were actually making discoveries. They just didn't realize what they were doing. Right. So, like, I, I obviously they did not have, like, the periodic table or mm -hmm. anything like that back then. But they were still aware of the existence of, like, the elements yeah. and all that. They just didn't. And technically, I mean, from what you're describing, they're they're trying to do what we would call a chemical change nowadays. Yeah, a chemical reaction, exactly. Uh, they were basically doing what chemists do, but, again, for different purposes. And they just because their goal wasn't to change matter it was just to get gold they didn't really care much well they did they they did care about these experiments uh but not for the same reasons uh right. and uh these so that again back to the uh as i said it's called a decanym so their code language which was very cryptic um they would do things like switch out words and uh use very cryptic language to try and hide these processes that they're, they're discoveries quote unquote um, and that's why they were very secretive about it. And again, as time went on, uh, compared to the, uh, more classical era, alchemy was more embraced, but as the medieval ages went on, alchemy slowly over time got to be associated with, uh, occultism and witchcraft. Um, but anyway, uh, so I want to continue a point you were on. So, uh, you were talking about how they did classify elements in a way. Now right. they, this is true. Uh, now it's not necess it's not the periodic table it's uh, a different perspective on viewing these metals um i have another question yeah. so um for example gold on the periodic table is au right yeah. um is that because back then they referred to gold as something different than what we call it now yeah so uh alc so the periodic table so au ag so uh this one, I uh, this one can't recall the name for gold, but the uh, gold, the name for uh, silver, for example, in Latin is along the lines of Argentinian, Argentinium. That's where we get the word Argentini, Ar Argentin, Argentini, Argentinia from Argentina, uh, right. Argentinium, land of silver. Uh, so that's why, for example, silver is AG on the periodic table because it's the Latin name. A lot of elements on the periodic table use Latin abbreviation rather than uh their more uh the names are typically used today uh what's interesting is uh many of the modern um elements that were discovered use more modern words but some do kind of play into different uh naming nomenclature it's interesting that you you mentioned that because it, it is very like I'm, I'm i have a class right now that i have to study the periodic table for it mm -hmm. and like you can tell when you're getting towards the more 
modern elements that had only been discovered very recently because like um i know like two examples Laurentium, yeah or like rutherfordium mm-hmm. or something Absolutely. like that or things that are like obviously named after very modern names as opposed to like the the original ones which were obviously not yeah it so it's kind of a uh i guess a commentary on humanities like again we'll get to this in a minute so the metals that they classified in alchemy but when going down this list uh keep in mind uh carson uh like just think of like the long history with these metals specifically humanity has had compared to like you said an element like tenesium named after tennessee or (laughs) nihonium named after japan you know so uh keep in mind like when looking at these uh, materials they're separated between the noble metals in alchemy and the base metals and their associations uh so yeah so especially gold uh which is at the top of the list uh so gold being the first of the two noble metals in alchemy is associated with the sun again uh before we get into this uh discussing geocentrism at uh at first so we talked about copernicus in the last episode uh and in thinking about it in many ways copernicus could be said the greatest murderer of the human imagination in many ways because the moment that copernicus came along with his heliocentrism a lot of the aspects of alchemy that were relying on geocentrism and the earth being the center of the universe basically collapsed uh and around that time you know chemistry would uh take the fold as the uh chemical science of the times uh so keep that in mind when looking into a lot of alchemaic uh lore and literature it's more it's completely focused on the geocentric aspect uh, especially the ancient uh writing so anyway so the noble metals so gold is associated with the sun that makes sense you think right right so the, the being the yellow and the the thing we see in the sun most often and the sky most often uh and also gold uh could be said to be the the in many ways one of the biggest forces of driving mankind to do many of the actions it has uh, i mean it's basically wealth embodied right because for some reason us as animals uh as homo sapiens we like gold uh there's a lot of uh psychological explanations to this but uh no other animal seems to have a as much a lust for gold as we do and that's interesting right um it i imagine it might have something to do with how well obviously it, it might be a bit of a societal construct yeah. like that's just how For we sure. grow up like gold is it's like a currency mm-hmm. but um it also might have to do with how rare gold is yeah. in comparison to other metals that is true gold is very rare um and it I, in a way could it perhaps be said that it just naturally appeals to the human eye it, it could be said that i also imagine it might have something to do with its it's delicacy yeah like gold is not as strong of a metal as like iron or something like that which means that it's it's not going to be used for any real practical purpose and it's almost always going to be used for a more cosmetic reason as opposed to like you know you could make a i don't know like a hammer or a helmet out of iron but you're yeah. probably not going to make a golden hammer unless you just want to show the hammer off as a sign of wealth exactly yeah it's um it's like in this category being the noble metal uh it's a royal lustrous metal certainly it's soft and it's rare so it's not going to be used in warfare of course so but the fact that humans desire it as such uh so of course i would say it 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 deserves that title as being associated with the sun yes Uh, now going into the second metal uh second place literally uh silver being associated with uh the moon 
course. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So sun, moon, gold, silver. Uh, in many ways, that does make sense. The two metals, one could say, that uh, drives human uh, nature for wealth, uh, being associated with the two heavenly bodies that humanity sees basically every day. Right. Um, so, and of course, gold being associated with the bigger of the two. So that just naturally plays into uh, human psychology uh, in many ways. Right. Now, uh, done with the noble metals, just those two. The base metals. Now, these are more earthly, uh, well, not earthy, but more common folk metals. Uh, so they each correlate to, like, the noble metals to a different celestial body. Um, so at least the ones so that the ancient people would have observed. So starting with the first one in our system. So mercury. What do you think the element is? M mercury. The planet. So, like, what element was associated with the planet Mercury. I feel like it's I feel like self explanatory. It, it might have something to do with uh ancient mythology. Well, yes. Uh so Mercury being named after the uh Latinized name of Hermes, uh so Hermes being the messenger god. That's interesting association there, uh, with Mercury. So uh like so Mercury, the planet, is associated with the element Mercury. Right. Uh, if that makes sense. Uh now that's an interesting association. Uh Mercury, if you're familiar, you've probably seen Mercury before, the liquid metal. Uh, um it's association with the not only the god the messenger god in many ways like a god of speed also b being associated with a planet that has the shortest orbit so in many ways the fastest planet in our solar system so interesting association there with it being a liquid metal so um quick it's called quicksilver uh as you might know mercury that's another name for mercury so it's seen as like since it's liquid probably more act proactive element uh as one might associate with the god hermes or mercury Right. So, uh, first celestial body was Mercury compared with the element Mercury. Now, uh, the second planet, uh, Venus, uh, what element do you believe it to be? It's a metal. Yeah, so each planet has a metal associated with it. And these are the, the base metals. Vanadium? Vanadium. Uh, is that an element? I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is. But no, it's um copper. Oh. Copper, okay. so... In Venus being the god of beauty, I guess, uh, and copper is a another pretty-ish metal. Uh, right. Being a, uh, Use it to make bronze. Bronze with uh, another element that's on this list, 10, which we'll get to in a second. But yes, uh, copper um, is a, I, uh, this one would say is a pretty metal. Uh, pretty metal. Um, but very much utilized because it, it is fairly common, we especially today. We still use it today for quite mm -hmm. a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, next planet, Mars, god of war. Mm, iron? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, and also an association with uh, oxidization and rust. Uh, Mars being a red planet. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's an interesting... Parallel, yeah, I guess you could say. There's a lot of mythology behind the planet Mars, it being a red planet, god of war, Ares, uh, blood, death. Uh, so iron is the perfect association. So they they had telescopes that were advanced enough to where they could see how 
the surface of Mars looked well, at that time? Uh, they didn't know the surface of Mars was red, but Mars is so red and so close that uh, it actually appears as a red star. Which, unfortunately, us living in the modern society have do not have the pleasure of seeing because of light pollution. But oh. if you go out into the desert right now uh, in the Midwest, you are likely to see the planet Mars uh, having its red uh, orbit. Actually, what's interesting is the ancients... Uh, it's a red star, right, Mars? The ancients yeah. noticed that the planets Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, unlike... So, again, associated with the noble metals... Uh, Whereas the sun and the moon seem to have straight paths, the five other celestial bodies, so the five closest planets to us, they don't have uh, correct like good paths, like a uh, straightforward paths. They they wander. In fact, the the word planet comes from the Greek word planetos, which means wanderer. Hmm. So they believe that these planets in our sky uh, with these weird paths uh, were in a, many ways associated with the gods themselves. Uh, and with certain, like we're going down this list, with the physical, certain physical aspects of our planet. Uh, so anyway, so Mars, iron. Uh, next planet, Jupiter. Any ideas? Um, what goes with what makes bronze? Tin. Yeah. So yeah, uh, this one uh, does not really know uh, the right association. So tin would be. And at least to this one, only associated with bronze. But tin uh, was a not a fairly common uh, material in the ancient world because actually it was quite rare. And there, uh, in the trade routes of the Bronze Age, where tin was very much relied on, there was a lot of intensive focus on tin trade specifically because there were these places called the Tin Lands. And historians theorize where these lands might have been. Something it's as far as Britain. Now keep in mind, it's talking about like ancient, like Arabia. Right. These people making bronze in Egypt, and they're like, believe they be, these tin lands. They believe it to be either as far as Britain or in the central in Central Asia, or even as far as China. So, right. it's that's what's interesting about tin. It's rare, but it's it was absolutely a necessity for any like anything back then, tools or warfare. Did they make like? I, I know this this might be a little strange of a question, but did they did they make like containers out of tin the same way that we would have like a tin can or something like that? They probably did. Uh, now since it was more rare, they probably tried to limit it as much. Let's see. So uses for tin in the ancient world. Uh, well, that's that's weird because it is tin. I imagine tin is still a rare metal, right? Uh, not as much in, in our modern society. Uh, this one believes not to be as much, but, uh, it is not a, like, extremely rare metal. Is uh, that why we have so much more of it and, like, all the products we use? Yeah, with industrialization and more, uh, better mining techniques, it's certainly more accessible. In fact, like, uh, and another example, which is not on this list, would be aluminum. Aluminum, for the longest time, has been a very expensive metal, but due to, uh, the new techniques that we have in this modern society, uh, aluminum is sold for like a, like $1 a sheet. So, um, great thing, isn't it? Uh, anyway, tin associated with Jupiter, God is, uh, Zeus, Jupiter being the Latin name for Zeus. So I guess a patriarchal metal, I guess you could say. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I mean, it is important. Uh, in fact, uh, depending on how much copper to tin ratio you make in the bronze the bronze would end up differently which is interesting and oh if uh you want to play along at home listeners uh just look up 10 artifacts these are some interesting ones 10 swords 10 bowls okay that might be uh yeah it's quite rare but see that uh the estimated area of the tin lands you know the tin deposits 
Uh, final metal, Saturn. Um, I'm. It's an interesting one. Can you give me a hint? Um, so it's a phoneme for lead. Lead. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so yeah, lead is also uh was used in the ancient world, but for different purposes. Um, uh, it was certainly known, uh, in the ancient world, but uh, this one does not know uh as to what use it would have been. So, okay. Uh, use soldiered lead sheets to fasten bolts. Okay, for construction, basically. Uh, modern day use lead for bullets and probably other things, but so a military metal. Associated with Saturn, uh, a harvest god, god of time, Cronus. Interesting take there. Now, uh, now these celestial bodies, uh, Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, seven, seven being a magical number, right, uh, in the ancient world, uh, they wouldn't have, the, the, the Egyptians would not have called the planets what they, we call them now, of course. They had their own name uh, for these planets. But a lot of ancient peoples, saw these seven celestial bodies, of course, the sun, moon, and those five planets, and had their own mythologies for it, gave them their own names, uh, usually associating with gods. But uh, So did they believe, like, say, for example, um, did they believe that um, the sun was made out of gold? Uh, uh, in some uh, stories and mythologies, likely. Uh, there is a, I mean, after all, there is a strong association with gold and the sun, so there is probably a correlation there uh, i mean with the god helios and uh other chariot sun gods usually being associated with bright rays of gold and yellow mm. now before we get into more about egypt uh, a few things about alchemy and its backstory so uh alchemy uh developed from two traditions mainly so uh the egyptian tradition the or the egyptian metallurgical tradition as we will call it uh which is a very ancient tradition in the Bronze Age, if you were to find any kind of exquisite metalwork, it would be com coming from Egypt. Because uh, the Egyptians, in many ways, it was a religious rite. Uh, many of the priests uh, were involved in metallurgy. And if you, just looking up uh, artifacts from Egypt, so uh, one of the best collections being the collection of Tutankhamun, which I'm sure you've probably seen pictures of, Carson. Um, exquisite gold work uh, and all that metal that they used, they uh, had techniques to try and luster up the metal. Uh, that was one big technique. So they were certainly masters of their metallurgical craft. So that's one tradition, the Egyptian tradition. The other one being the uh, Greek tradition, uh, which usually involves the pre-Socratics because the, the Greeks are more concerned not as much with metallurgy but more physics and metaphysics, uh, trying to understand what reality is made of because the pre-Socratics focused on, so the philosophers before Socrates were more focused on figuring out if the universe is made of either fire, water, Earth, air, or right. in the case of Pythagoras, math. Uh, an interesting thing there, uh, which we will be discussing in a future episode. So, suppose, uh, sorry, I suppose you could say it is kind of made out of math because it's yeah. made out of physics. Yeah, the, uh, Pythagoras uh, certainly uh, was a entrepreneur. Uh, a, a well, he he discovered many aspects of physics. He actually did believe that. Uh, using math you could change the universe around you which that's an insane tank and we will actually we will have an episode about pythagoras uh in his golden thigh and his math cult on a future episode that will be an interesting one mm. uh, so anyway so yeah so the combination of a egyptian metallurgical tradition which predates the uh greek pre-socratic metaphysic tradition i'm trying to figure out the 
when the universe is made up. That that the metallurgical tradition predates the Greek tradition by thousands of years. It's like a whole other world that existed before the Greeks were even thinking about what what the universe is made of, right? So, and this these really came together. Uh, let me switch the page here. So these really came together. Now, of course, we're going to talk about Alexander, uh, Alexander the Great, who before before then, Egypt was very influenced by the, the Greeks, and the Greeks were very influenced by the Egyptians. But when Alexander came along, it was just an extreme meshing of Hellenized Hellenistic ideas and this old Egyptian, uh, all these old tra Egyptian traditions. So in many ways, the chemistry, oh, alchemy, and by extent chemistry can be uh, thanked to Alexander in many ways. What's your take on that? Um, he definitely did have a very big impact on the world. And um, I know, like, it, the world changed quite mm -hmm. a bit whenever yeah. he was around specifically because he he occupied so much of the world. So there's going to be a lot of mishmashing of different cultures. And then right after he died, the world split up again and got occupied by completely different people, which would probably separated cultures and made subcultures even mm -hmm. more in of itself so yeah a lot of change a lot did change uh when he did bring these Hellenic hellenistic ideas to several corners of the globe specifically with egypt uh if you want to trace back the what people would stereotypically call the uh traditional medieval take on alchemy many of those traditions can be traced back to uh hellenized egypt uh after alexander and for a long time, Egypt after that was mostly a Greek place rather than an Egyptian one up until uh, the Arab conquest because even up until the late Byzantine Empire, Egypt was very much a Hellenized place uh, in their traditions and language. But yeah, so alchemy uh, was birthed from Egypt. In fact, uh, going back to etymology here, I should have mentioned this earlier, this is the kicker. So there's a theory of where the word alchemy itself came from. This is interesting. This is... The, perhaps one of the strongest connections if this etym etymological fact is true. So alchemy. The Egyptians had a wor different word for what they called their country, right? So what we know it to be is uh, because unfortunately with e Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, it's a abjad, so there's no syllables, um, syllables uh, vowels, right? It's just consonants. So they, they we, we know that the Egyptians said their the title of their country as something along the lines of KMT, which is usually spelled out as Kemet. Now, imagine, I'm just going to say it here, Kemet, Kemet, Ka Alchemy, Kemet, Alchemy, right? So there's a connection there because, so that what Kemet means is uh, the black land, so you being referred to the black soil of the Nile, which for many generations was the most bountiful place on earth. So there seems to be a connection there with this, this constant, constant chemical change and uh, these reactions along the Nile somehow becoming associated with chemical change and reactions and transmutation later on when it became the word alchemy. Could you see a correlation there between Kemet and the word alchemy and then chemistry? Yeah, I could definitely see a correlation between Kemet and chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and al the, the chem in oh, yeah. alchemy sounds a lot like uh, commit. Yeah, commit. Com so there certainly is a strong uh, emphasis, or certainly it could be true that the word commit, the word the Egyptians used for their homeland, would become the word alchemy 
and chemistry. And the word chem by accent, because chem is just a, um, a smaller prefix word that can be used for any, uh, any word. So yeah, there, now this may not be, it may not have been proven yet because etymology is a very tricky subject, but, uh, there certainly is a connection there, especially considering where the Western alchemaic tradition was established in this Mediterranean world, specifically in Egypt, which has long been the strongest power in the Mediterranean world. Uh, also, callers, uh, if you want to call in now, we'll just keep discussing alchemy uh, for the next 20-ish minutes. But if you all want to call in and share an idea or anything else, feel free. The number is 95-448-5678. 448 Anyway, so... Uh, there's another aspect to Egypt and alchemy, which you're probably familiar with, and that's uh, mummification. Mm. Now, uh, if you remember correctly, I uh, there was a video sent that uh, this one might have showed you. It was these guys trying to replicate the mummification process on a chicken. I remember that. Yes, you remember that. Yes. Um, they almost ate it. They did. Yes. Uh, listeners, go look up this video. It's insane. These uh fools mummified in the technique of the ancient egyptians because it's actually very well documented how this process went down they mummified a chicken and they were going to eat it but after smelling how bad it was they decided not to which pretty smart but uh what's interesting about this mummification process is there's a lot of chemistry involved uh if you really think about it so the, one of the main things people think of when they think of the mummification process is the application of the salt called uh natron uh, which is a is basically just salt. It was a salt that Egyptians would uh, find in their desert. Uh, it was fairly common, and it was used in the drying process, which took 40 days. Natron. It starts with N-A, mm-hmm. which is the symbol for sodium. Yeah. Uh, nitrate, na- uh, natron. Natron basically just being a stronger salt. So, yeah, uh, the uh, I believe that is a Latin root, the nitrate. Uh, but we... we uh, Anglophones call it sodium for some reason, mm. uh, so, or salt, how, whatever the reason for that may be. But yes, um, so that was the first aspect of it. Then that uh, natron, which was fairly common uh, in their dry environment, but there's also other aspects to it. So it's a lot of oils and incense, right? Uh, they would make these complex inc- incenses. Uh, it's called kefi. Which in the video they actually made this, and they said it took like seventeen different materials just to make this one incense, which they would have to burn every day. Now, uh, after the drying process and burning incense, you well you apply oils before the drying process, but after the drying process, uh, more oils and uh, other essential liquids were put onto the body before wrapping. Right, this because the Egyptians were really focused on trying to make your body smell good. They, they had a very weird obsession with afterlife, of course. Uh, so they were always tr- strive to make any dead body smell good, like no stench at all. And they did this by removing organs, taking the brain out. Uh, and they had their own rituals for organs, putting it in canopic jars. So but again, going back to alchemy, and uh, because it seems they are they are in fact using chemical processes, but again, like how alchemy and chemistry are the same because the purposes are different. This, one could say, preform of chemistry or preform of alchemy was basically just chemistry and chemical processes, but for the different purposes, correct? Right. Yeah, so even back, so this tradition, this mummification tradition, perhaps going back even as far as 3000 BC, uh, one can relate 
this ancient old 3000 year old uh, 6000 year old tradition uh, if it's even older to chemistry itself I mean uh, with how they were trying to achieve these goals of uh, having bodies that did not stink and were well preserved uh, you can certainly tell many of the features these people had in life some of the mummies that are preserved uh, it very uh, intensive process uh, one can imagine because those guys just did a chicken and that took about four people but they really had it was an industry in many ways in Egypt because for one whole person it could take ten people or more so is and, it documented how well um, the mummification process paid people uh well it was reserved for again so the, with uh, with the metallurgical tradition also uh, as m mentioned previously the priestly class was mostly the ones involved in the mummification mummification process uh, so it certainly was a big part of their economy considering they had to buy a lot of these resources just to bury someone to give them a rightful burial in their tradition uh, now the, the Egyptians it was a very autocratic society collectivist very rigid structured so it was all run by the Pharaoh or the great house uh, that ran basically all of Egypt as an autocratic society but nevertheless uh, they were very much the highest society for a long 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 time and a fact that their most of their economy was focused on chemistry and uh, specifically chemistry involving techniques such as embalming so uh, for morticians which they do a lot of chemistry in many ways with bodies uh, that's very interesting that uh, these traditions have lasted this long and they're very well documented uh, now tying into that also uh, did you know that the Egyptians also had doctors as a profession they did yeah they did uh, did you know in many circumstances it was a gender neutral uh, profession well, the Egyptians in general were more gender neutral, uh, or at least they were patriarchal, but they gave a lot of uh, privileges to women in their society, at least compared to near other Near Eastern societies like Mesopotamia and the ancient Greeks. Uh, so they actually have records of uh, a doctor named Merit Ptah, interesting name because Ptah is the builder god in Egypt, so her last name is literally creator god so there are records of this merit ptah uh a female physician in the ancient egyptian world and that's interesting because the egyptians the fact that they had doctors and other medicinal practices as a profession shows that they had a really deep understanding of the body uh again chemistry now how well they truly had understanding not as well because again many of the ancient egyptian medicinal practices uh, contributed to other medicinal practices such as humorism which you're probably familiar with where uh, in the medieval era and before so people believe that diseases were caused by an imbalance in the four liquids in the human body apparently uh, so that's where a lot of that was influenced there is some truth to that truth about uh, substances being imbalanced in the body but um, very primitive you, you must say right um, but yes yeah, so the fact that they uh, understood the body so well the Egyptians um, ties in with the mummification process of course uh, I feel like they probably they probably had like I guess what I would compare it to is an artist's understanding of human anatomy yeah an artist like 
knows the basic proportions of a body and they know like the shape of an arm but they're not going to be able to tell you like the exact muscles or anything like that a doctor from that time they probably don't know all the specifics of like say for example why a wound heals or why blood clots or something like that because they don't have things like microscopes mm -hmm. or anything like that but yeah. they they know this thing happens I'm not sure why, but it does happen, and we can take advantage of that. Yeah, uh, this again with the thesis of this whole episode, the epistemological argument of like what is knowledge anyway? Because us in the modern society, we call it chemistry, but really, you could say that for anyone who accidentally made phosphorus or whatever or pyrite, you know. So I mean, they would have been doing it for different purposes, but does it even matter at that point? Because what they're doing is they're doing chemical processes, uh, so. Chemistry has lasted a long time uh, with this idea, you know, uh, tying into Plato's ideas of forms and what is an idea anyway, uh, or an object. The truest form of an object is being the imaginary rather than something in the physical world. So uh, with that, they were, at least this one would say, the argument being they did do chemistry. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I would agree by, by the definition mm -hmm. of chemistry they were doing chemistry they, they might have chemistry. not had like lab coats on or using like Erlenmeyer flask or anything like that but they yeah. were doing the same things that um, a lot of like modern day chemists would do uh, when looking back on older traditions we in the modern society should probably drop our preconceptions about uh, what how these people live their lives or their understanding because yes they didn't understand what they were doing was what we would call chemistry if chemistry is even a thing in the grand scheme of things anyway, uh, they were just doing it because that's what their society was focused on. I mean, in many ways, how our society is focused on other things that chemistry relies on, uh, living in this world where we launch rockets into space. That's, that's some extreme chemical science. Right. Um, and only like 3,000 years ago, people were just at the bare minimum just doing chemistry just to preserve bodies and uh make gold more lustrous or try to make a fake gold substitute as one could say so yeah uh now coming to the final topic here of this short episode so callers if y'all want to call in uh, the number is 985-448-5678 again 985-448-5678 so uh final topic here uh kind of tying into uh the planet mercury in a way uh so the character who a character who's often associated with alchemy and specifically the hermetic tradition is uh, referred to his Latin name as Hermes Trismegistus, who I believe uh, we've discussed before, not on air, but the deal with this individual. So he's a mythological figure who is said to be the amalgamation amalgamation. Again, going back to alchemy being a, a Greek and Egyptian tradition, Hermes Trismegistus was thought to be a combination of the Greek God, Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth, god of knowledge. So, in many ways, that's Tr Hermes Trismegistus is the personification of the alchemaic tradition, the the old medieval or classical era alchemaic tradition. Uh, one could say. Um, now he's attributed. He, he, it's very likely this person exists, of course, but he's attributed to creating several. Um, uh, documents, uh, one of them being the Emerald Tablet, which I actually have a quote uh, I'd like to read from in a minute. But uh, Isaac Newton uh, himself called alchemy 
as side note I have here. The one thing by which the world was created. So again, going back to Isaac Newton as an alchemist and of course later as a chemist, sorry. Um, Isaac Newton did certainly see an importance on alchemy, uh, even up until late 1600s, until it was completely brought out, uh, pushed out by superstition and such. But, okay, I have a quote here, but. So, but sorry to interrupt. No, you, you're good. But was there like, you say it was brushed away as a superstition. Yeah. Whenever you say that, do you mean like there was a brief moment in time where like, alchemy was dismissed but chemistry had not like come into the limelight yet yeah so the general timeline is so let's start with alexander so alchemy kind of develops into its medieval form through the classical era not in the same way but uh like it's not the same in the medieval era as is in the classical but those traditions are closely linked so up until about christianity and when christianity became the state religion of rome and time after that uh, alchemy kind of got pushed away as a satanic art or associated with witchcraft. So it got pushed underground around the time that Christendom took over. Uh, and after that, it was still kind of like an occult practice. Mm -hmm. Even up until Newton, uh, people were doing it. Even after Copernicus kind of blew the whole world away with the whole heliocentrism thing. Um, people were still doing it in their basements, uh, trying to make gold. Or so they thought. Um and yes, it was persecuted by the Christians at the time, but as chemistry, as a science developed, when, again, around that time of Boyle and Isaac Newton, people understood the physical matter more and its aspects and how the universe works in that way. Uh, chemist chemistry kind of took over as the chemical science rather than alchemy, where alchemy focused more on just trying to produce stuff and transmutation, or specifically gold, where chemistry mm -hmm. focused more on studying the uh, absolute material aspect of the material world around us, which is interesting because uh, going back to the pre-Socratics, which we'll have an episode on, uh, studying atoms and atomism is actually an ancient Greek uh, speculation, believe it or not. Uh, drawing a blank here. The uh, pre-Socratic philosopher who actually predicted that atoms did exist. So, yeah, in many ways, uh, we really stop viewing technology as a straightforward path, I guess you could say, because it kind of dips in uh, many directions at many points, because at least as far as we know, the Greeks knew about something that they refer to as atoms. Not all Greeks believe this, but they, they had a theory there, but it wouldn't be refined up until not even the turn of the century, around the late 1800s, that people really started to figure out atoms were a thing. So, yeah, back to Hermes Tristan Gisses. So there's a quote here from the Emerald Tablet. I'll just read this real quick. Do you have anything you want to say about uh, alchemy or chemistry in the later era? Or uh, not to my knowledge currently. Okay. So <laughs> I'll just read this. So the Emerald Tablet, uh, before we get into it, Hermes Trismegistus, obviously a mythological figure, not real, associated with alchemy. It said he was a contemporary of Moses, which, I mean, when you say you're a contemporary of biblical figures, uh, one is the question, you know, because right. he's not—he doesn't even appear. Like, is is it must be a later uh, edition that he was a contemporary of Moses? Because it's believed that the figure Hermes Megistus came to be around uh, the 600s BC or 700 BC, so way later than when those texts were written. Uh, but anyway, here is a excerpt from the Emerald Tablet. I will read. Uh, just you have listen to it and just think about what it may mean. So, because a lot again, a lot of alchemic writings very cryptic. That which is beloved 
above is like that to which is below, and that which is below is like that which is above, to accomplish the miracles of one thing. And as all things were by contemplation of one, so all things arose from this one thing by a single act of adaptation. The father thereof is the sun, the mother the moon. The wind carried it in its womb, the earth is the nurse thereof. It is the father of all works of wonder throughout the whole world. The power thereof is perfect. If it be cast onto the earth, it will separate the element of earth from that of fire, the subtle from the gross. With the great sagacity, it doth ascend gently from earth to heaven. Again, it doth descend to earth, and uneth itself the force from things superior and things inferior. Thou, thus thou, wilt possess the glory and the brightness of the whole world, and all obscurity will fly far from thee. This thing is the strong fortitude of all strength. For it will overcome every subtle thing, and doth penetrate every solid substance. Thus was this world created. Hence will there be marvelous adaptations achieved, of which the manner is this. For this reason I am called Hermes Trismegistus, because I hold three parts of the wisdom of the whole world. That which I had to say about the operation of soul is complete. Soul, Latin, usually being associated with sun. So, uh, very cryptic there. Uh... You could certainly see there's a lot of uh, focus on how the the physics of the world and the chemistry behind it. You could say uh, how this individual who claimed to be the character Hermes Trismegistus uh, claimed the world may have come to be. So, uh, what's your opinion? Uh, did you find any value? At the beginning, it kind of sounded like he was describing an atom. Mm, yeah. So that which is above above is like that which is below, and that which is below is like that which is above uh is that what you're referring to yeah yeah so that's a interesting uh hermetic uh axiom that basically giving the perspective of whatever is happening on this material plane must also coincide with certain laws on the heavenly plane basically uh if you want to apply this to modern science uh one of the greatest ideas to wrap your head around it would be gravity Gravity is not only something that affects us on this planet, it's also something that affects the whole universe. It's what holds the universe together. So it seems that even in the ancient world, again, going back to this whole epistemological idea of what is knowledge anyway, that even the ancient people understood that the rules that were affecting them on this earth that they could only experience must also correlate to certain laws in this heavenly body above them that they did not fully understand. But they predicted that the laws that they were uh, feeling and associating with must have context above. And that's a very interesting take, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. So and that's a very common, uh, which associated with alchemy, but mostly the uh, hermetic tradition. So, yeah. So I think that's uh, just about all my notes. Um, one thing I forgot to talk about. Uh, alchemy has a lot to do with astrology, again, with the geocentric idea uh with the heavenly bodies and from our perspective on earth it's people making patterns of what was given to us like the fact that we're on our earth people form stories and ideas based on the path of the stars and the such and they believe that alignment of stars certain alignment of heavenly bodies would uh contribute to certain outcomes uh now what's interesting is when looking at alchemaic illustrations now one could argue that if you're familiar with the Egyptian writing script hieroglyphics, correct? You're familiar with that yes. pictographic. 
uh, a lot of alchemaic drawings are very reliant on pictographics and pictures. Uh, again, because necessarily writing all these things down, they wanted to remain cryptic. So making cryptic drawings, uh, if you if listeners want to look up alchemaic art, uh, it basically has a lot of motifs to it. Usually there's a gendered motif with a man, a woman, sun, moon, seven aspects, seven elements. Uh, it, it's, it's very interesting to look at. Um, usually associated with all those weird medieval drawings you're probably familiar with. Um, yes. With those really strange illustrations. But uh, it could be argued that um, the Egyptian hieroglyphic tradition kind of contributed to that. Uh, if one could search for certain motifs. Again, going back, perhaps, the Jungian argument of Jung saying certain things just kind of show up in the human consciousness everywhere, certain patterns. Uh, there's a human aspect to it. But nonetheless... Uh, hieroglyphics for sure. Uh, looking up alchemaic drawings certainly an influence there. So, and with the astrology also right. being a very ancient tradition. So, uh, I think that's all my notes. Yes. So that was Egypt and alchemy. A uh, very short episode uh, for this week. Uh, you have anything you'd like to say before we go? Um, I. I think this has been my favorite one so far. Yeah, I mean, to we're, be only, honest. we're only two in. <laughs> yeah, I know, but uh, still. Yeah. I like I like chemistry a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to be using a lot more chemistry in my life, so it's it's nice to see where the origins of it came from. Yeah, it's very important to know the origins of chemistry. Like, even before, like, humans tend to agree when chemistry, quote-unquote, was created, perhaps sometime in the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, it's not that clear cut. It's more of a gradient, one could say. So, right. in a way, humbling yourself to the knowledge of our forefathers and what they were trying to figure out, again, for different purposes, trying to make gold. Um, but, uh, again, it's a continuation rather than two separate things, one could say. Right. So, anyway, uh, that's all for this episode. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the second episode of the Philosophicast. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks because we will be off for Mardi Gras break. But you can catch all of our shows on Spotify at Can Issue the Podcast once again. And be sure to download the Radio FX app to listen to our shows wherever you may be. Uh, as for that, uh, you've been listening to 91.5 Can Issue Thibodeau or local alternative. Have a good night.